Good morning, brethren. It's my pleasure to be able to come to you and speak to you this morning, even though I'm in St. Louis while you're listening to this sermon. The Lord willing, while you're listening to this particular sermon, I will be in the middle of the service in St. Louis shortly to catch my plane back to you and to be back here this evening. I thank the Lord for witty inventions that allow us to do things like this, although it's difficult for me to pretend that you're all there listening to me preach when in fact I'm doing it in the privacy of my own home. I trust that you'll pay attention this morning, concentrate the best you can even though I'm not there, and try to learn something from the Word of the Lord as we open it this morning. Before we begin, let's bow our heads for a word of prayer and trust His blessing upon our efforts. Father in heaven, we thank Thee that You have made it possible for us to preach the gospel in other cities than our own. We pray that this morning, while we are preaching the gospel in St. Louis, that you would grant by thy Holy Spirit that sinners might be converted unto thee. Open their hearts as you did the heart of Lydia. Grant them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth, that, Lord, those who had lived in darkness might see a great light, the light of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ, being saved from the ignorance and darkness that they have been in, being saved from the bondage and delusion of false religion, into the liberty of the sons of God, that they might have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with Thee. Forgive us our sins, Heavenly Father, and grant now as we come together around Thy Word, we might learn some things from it that would help us while we are here in this world to cope with those afflictions that are often brought our ways, that we might learn patience and hope, that we here in the midst of trials and tribulations might rejoice and find comfort and peace in thy sovereignty and careful providence. O Lord, be with us now. Grant that all distractions might be taken away and that we might give our full attention to what you have for us in the Holy Scriptures. Lord, bless now thy most unworthy servant that the preaching will be in the power of the Holy Ghost and to the benefit of each of thy sheep. For it's in the name of Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen. This morning, I want to preach to you a somewhat different sermon than I typically would. We're going to try to stay in one book this morning. Now, to stay in one book, that means we're not only going to be preaching an expository type sermon, but we're going to be preaching an overview, which means that I'm going to stay in one book and not be running all over the Bible, providing a lot of different verses to bring to bear on this particular book. But I've had a book that I've wanted to preach to you for some time, and it was last Sunday that a couple of you mentioned some things to me about this particular book of the Bible and so stimulated my mind this past week that I felt that it was time that I wanted to preach a short overview of this book to you. Now, I may not get finished this morning. In fact, if I'm realistic, I won't finish this morning and I'll have to finish it with you this evening when I'm back in person. But this morning I'd like you to turn to the book of Job. Please turn with me to the book of Job and we'll see if we can't learn some things the Lord has for us from this book. Job is an excellent book to prepare us to suffer temptations, trials, and afflictions here in this world and to come through them in a way that pleases the Lord and to end up receiving His blessing in our lives for having so passed His test. 
So opening your Bibles to the book of Job, let's begin a study of this book. It's not going to be an exhaustive study. We won't deal with every single verse. But what I'll try to give you is an overview of the whole book from beginning to end to give you some familiarity with the book so that as you read it in your own reading, you'll understand more of what's taking place there. And hopefully, I'll bring to bear some this morning and this evening some lessons that will help you endure trials and temptations. For if a man in this world ever endured trials and temptations, it was our brother Job. We've been studying the book of Ecclesiastes in the evening services, and in that book we read of the man King Solomon who experienced the Lord's blessing in his life. He had riches, he had wisdom, he had the power and authority as king of Israel, he had good looks, he had a lot of blessings that you and I will never be able to achieve in our lives. And he used those blessings in order to find out what profit there was for man under the sun. Well, Job had the opposite experience. Job experienced God's worst for a man in this world. And we want to see how Job handled that and what Job did and what Job didn't do that pleased the Lord. The book of Job is what we want to deal with this morning. Job deals and covers the lesson of how we are to handle afflictions in this life so that we might have peace in the face of tribulation and please the God who sometimes allows those afflictions to come our way. Job's an important man to learn. Job's an important man to see how he behaved in the face of affliction. And I want to give you a few reasons now as to why I feel the study of the book of Job will be important for us. Turn your Bibles to Ecclesiastes 14 while you keep your finger in Job chapter 1. Ecclesiastes chapter 14. The first point I'd like to make is that Job is one of those few men in Scripture that God considers a good man. Remember, I have preached to you sermons that the Lord is looking for a few good men. You know, I use the slogan of the U.S. Marine Corps in order to present that point. There were a few men in Scripture that God looked at as mediators or representatives that he would deal with in place of the whole nation or that he would deal with in place of a whole city or that he would deal with in place of a whole family. God's looking for a few men who have such character that God will deal with them instead of a group at large. Job is one of those men. Look at Ezekiel chapter 14. I'd like to read verse 14. Here God is saying to Ezekiel that the state of things in Israel, that is in Judah and Jerusalem, had deteriorated so far that it wouldn't matter if several of those men that God respected as mediators were there. He wasn't going to save Jerusalem. He was going to destroy it. Look at Ezekiel 14 and verse 14. God says, Though these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, were in it, they should deliver but their own souls by their righteousness, saith the Lord God. Each of these three men had sufficient righteousness in other circumstances to have preserved families, cities, and nations. Look at Noah. Noah preserved his whole family by being, as we're told in Genesis chapter 6, a perfect and upright man before the Lord. Daniel preserved the nation of Judah so that they were brought back from captivity in Babylon to rebuild Jerusalem and their temple. 
but it was due to Daniel's intercession for them. And Job, as we shall see, provided intercession for his family and for his friends, and the Lord accepted Job's prayer and righteousness on their behalf. But the Lord's point here is that though these three men were to intercede on the behalf of Judah and Jerusalem, it was too late. This is before the time of Daniel. This is when Nebuchadnezzar is about to come and bring destruction upon Jerusalem. The point I want you to see, though, is that Job was a man that God looked to and respected his righteousness to such an extent that he would preserve a family. He would preserve friends based on Job's intercession. Those are the kind of men I hope that we can have in the Greenville Church. Not only men, I pray and trust God that we shall have women that will be looked to as mediators for the rest of the congregation, yea, for our city, yea, for the nation in which we live, that God will have mercy upon us because of a few righteous souls that live in the midst of it. Come back to Jeremiah 15 and verse 1. Jeremiah 15, 1, back a few chapters in your Bible, where we'll have a similar expression given for two other such representative types that God used in the Old Testament. Jeremiah 15, 1, a similar statement being made to Jeremiah. God said, Though Moses and Samuel stood before me, yet my mind could not be toward this people. Cast them out of my sight and let them go forth. Here, Samuel and Moses are mentioned. You know the case of Moses, that many times he beseeched the Lord for mercy on behalf of Israel, and God heard his prayer, and God saved the nation because of Moses' prayer. Samuel did the same in the days of Saul and David, interceding on behalf of the nation of Israel, and God heard his prayer. God had respect to the righteousness of Moses and Samuel to such an extent the nation was saved. Oh, to God that we had men like that today in America, men that God would look to and respect their righteousness and hear their prayers to such an extent that they could save a city, a church, and even a nation. Turn in your Bibles now to James, the fifth chapter. James chapter 5 in your New Testaments. I've tried to show you that Job is such a man that we want to pattern ourselves after him. I want you, and I hope that you want, to be a man like Job, a man that God will look to as a representative, as a man that can stand before him for the land or for the city or for the church. In James chapter 5, we have in the New Testament a further exhortation to follow the pattern of our brother Job. James 5 and verse 10. Take, my brethren, the prophets who have spoken in the name of the Lord for an example of suffering affliction and of patience. Now, James begins in verse 10 by asking us to look to the prophets for their examples of men who suffered affliction and who showed patience in the face of those afflictions. Verse 11, Behold, we count them happy which endure. Ye have heard of the patience of Job and have seen the end of the Lord. And the Lord is very pitiful and of tender mercy. Notice that James reminds these Hebrew Christians that he is writing to that they have heard and seen the example of Job. So we know that even in the New Testament, James taught the book of Job, that men had seen what happened to Job at the end of his experience, that they had heard of the afflictions he endured. 
And James says, we count them happy which endure. Don't we enjoy reading an account of a man who by faith endured great afflictions, and yet he endured. And when he gets to the end of his afflictions and he's endured and he's won the conflict, don't we count them happy? Yet, yea, we count Job happy when we get to the 42nd chapter or the last chapter of the book of Job. And we see that the Lord is very pitiful and of tender mercy. Oh, the Lord is merciful. Job might not have admitted that for some 40 chapters when he felt the afflictions of God's chastening and God's afflictions upon him. But when we come to the end of the book of Job, we do see Job realizing the pitiful tenderness and mercy of God. Here are two reasons why we want to study Job. Job is a representative, a good man. Job is a man who gives us an example of suffering afflictions. Coming back now to the book of Job, let's see if we can't see right in chapter 1 a reason why we ought to learn about the man Job and study the book that records for us what happened to him. Job chapter 1 and verse 1. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was perfect and upright and one that feared God and eschewed evil. I want you to see that Job is called by God a perfect man, an upright man, a man that fears God, and a man that eschews evil. If that be the case, and we want to be a man, and we want to be a woman like that, we want to be perfect, we want to be upright, we want to fear God, and we want to eschew evil, then the man Job is a man that we want to learn from, since he was a man like that. We also want to study the book of Job because when we get to the last chapter of the book of Job, we shall see that God blessed Job abundantly. In fact, God gave him two for one for everything that he took away in the beginning of his afflictions. Don't you want to receive the Lord's blessing in your life? Then we should look at Job, how he behaved, what the Lord told him he should have done differently, so that we can do that if we want to receive the Lord's best for our lives. Now, the book of Job is going to be a dialogue between a number of different personalities. Let me give you a few of the main personalities we have in the book of Job. We have Job himself, who suffered the afflictions. We have Job's three friends who came to, supposedly, at least this was their intent, comfort him and to mourn with him. They are Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. Now, we'll see them individually as we go through the book. But we have Job, we have his three friends, we have God, who's actually going to speak for four chapters to Job, we have Elihu, who's the only man who gives the reasonable and right perspective on the book of Job. And then we have Satan himself, who does some talking in this book, and who is the, the means of executing afflictions and pain upon Job to test his faith. Those are the personalities we have. And what the book of Job is going to do is going to give us a comparison of their perspectives on evil circumstances. We all have evil circumstances come into our lives. Job is going to teach us we can respond to them the way Job did. We can respond to them the way his three friends did. We can look at them the way Elihu did. Or we can have God's perspective completely on them from the beginning. And each of these, to a greater degree, is pleasing to the Lord. Job's three friends didn't please the Lord hardly at all. Job 
while better than his friends, did not meet up to the Lord's expectation. It was only Elihu who gives us the proper perspective on things. Now, we want to compare this spectrum of responses to evil and learn from it as to how we should respond. We all have physical problems. We have family problems. We have economic problems. Job had all three of those to a great degree. We want to learn how to respond so that we can please the Lord who's placed us here in this vain world. Now, the book of Job was written by Elihu. You'll see that established as we go through the book. I'm not going to prove it now. You'll see it as we go further. That Elihu, the one man who had the proper perspective and who the Bible tells us spoke in place of God until God actually began speaking for himself, he is the man who wrote the book. Now, the first verse told us that Job lived in the land of Uz. Now, we don't need to know a whole lot about the land. The Bible does tell us it was in the land of Edom. If we were to turn to a couple of passages, I could show you that Uz was in the land of Edom. And remember, the word Edom is another word for Esau. Esau's descendants settled in Arabia and near Arabia, and their land was called the land of Edom. They were called the Edomites, and the land of Uz was within that nation. Now, Job lived sometime between the flood and Moses. We don't know exactly when. It was before Moses, and it was after the flood. Here are the reasons why we know that, and that's why men have told us and why we can believe that the book of Job is the oldest book in your Bibles. Job was written before Genesis. Because remember, Moses wrote Genesis. Adam didn't write Genesis, but Moses did later, as the Holy Spirit inspired him to give an account of those things that occurred before the flood. One way we know is that when we meet Job in chapter 1, Job already has three daughters and seven sons. Now, if you were to have ten children, that would take you a few years to generate those children. So we could assume that Job is somewhere between 30 years of age and maybe 60 years of age. For men of that day had children well into their lives. But when we come to the last couple verses of the book of Job, we find that after the afflictions described in this book, Job lived another 140 years. So Job was very likely 200 years or older when he died. And we find that Moses lived to be 120, Joshua lived to be 110, and men's lives were shortened after the flood, and especially during the time of God's dealing with Israel, to about 70 or 80 years of age, as we can read in Psalm 90. But Job must have been around 200 years of age, so we know he was before Moses. He was in the time of Abraham and of Jacob and those men who lived to be 175 or 160 years of age. Another reason that we know he came after the flood is because in the 22nd chapter, we're going to see a reference made to the flood. When describing wicked men, it's going to talk about the foundation of the earth being overthrown by a flood. So that we know Job was written after the flood, but due to his age and due to this third point that there's no mention made of Israel. When Job offers up sacrifices, he offers them up right there. It appears in his backyard. He doesn't go to Jerusalem. He doesn't travel to Israel where sacrifices had to be made from the time of Moses forward. But you'll remember before Moses, there were men like Melchizedek. There were men like Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, 
who were Gentiles that worshipped God, yet they were not part of Israel. Job appears to be one of those men between the time of the flood and the time of Moses who worshipped God as a Gentile in their own way as God revealed to them how they were to worship. So for that reason, we know that Job was written, those reasons, we know that Job was written sometime between the flood and when Moses brought Israel into Canaan. Now the Bible tells us that Job was a perfect man. We read that in verse 1. There was a man in the land of us whose name was Job, and that man was perfect. Now obviously we know that doesn't mean legally perfect or even practically perfect in an absolute sense of the word, for no man is perfect. And if we say that no, there's a man that has no sin, according to 1 John, we lie if we say that a man does not have sin. What the Bible means when it says that is just like what it means in Matthew 5 and 48, when Jesus told us to be ye perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. As far as we can, and on a relative basis, we ought to strive for perfection. If we were to read Genesis chapter 6, we would read that Noah was a perfect man also, and upright in his generations. And so God had mercy upon him, God had grace upon him, and Moses was saved from the judgment, Noah, excuse me, was saved from the judgment of the flood. But we can see that Job and Noah were perfect men, and we're told to be perfect. And here's a man that we can pattern ourselves after. Now it says that Job feared God and eschewed evil. To eschew evil is to hate evil, to want to get away from it, not to allow it to have any presence in our lives. And if we were to turn, and we, we shall here just for a couple passages, to the book of Proverbs, we shall see that that is the definition of the fear of the Lord. Do you fear the Lord this morning? I can tell you whether you fear the Lord or not. Look at Proverbs chapter 8 and verse 13. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Pride and arrogancy and the evil way and the froward mouth do I hate. Now, I know all of you members. I try to know you. I try to watch you. I'm to be your overseer. I can tell by the degree that you hate pride, that you hate arrogancy, that you hate the evil way of men, and, and how you hate a forward mouth, to what degree you fear the Lord. See, the Bible tells me how to measure your fear of the Lord. I measure it by what degree you hate these things. Do you hate evil? Well, that is, by definition, the fear of the Lord. Those of you who are always trying to see how close you can get to the line, you know, we believe that there are, there's white area. That is where we know it's holiness before the Lord and doing that which is right. We know that there's a black area, which is doing that pleasing to the devil and displeasing to the Lord. And we know there's a gray area in between, or at least we try to convince ourselves that there is. Some of you want to stay in the white and stay away from the gray. Others of you like living in the gray, seeing how close you can get to the black. Well, those of you who want to see how close you can get to the world because you want to enjoy some of the world's pleasures, you know what that tells me about you? You don't fear the Lord like some of the other members. You don't fear the Lord to the same degree men like Job did. Because true fear of the Lord hates evil. It wants to retract itself away from evil, eschew evil like Job did, and get away from it. So watch your own lives to see to what degree and what level of zeal you have and vehement desire, as Paul would say in 2 Corinthians 7, 11, to stay away from evil. 
Look at chapter 16, Proverbs chapter 16 and verse 6. By mercy and truth, iniquity is purged, and by the fear of the Lord, men depart from evil. If you fear the Lord, you will depart from evil. You will not be trying to play games with the world, claiming to be a Christian, and yet wanting to taste of the world's delicacies. You'll want to get away from it. You know, the Lord told us that if you're a friend of the world, you're his enemy. If you're his friend, you'll be an enemy of the world. You can't love both. The Bible tells us you can't serve two masters. You're going to want to hate one and stay away from it. Job did that. Job was a man who feared the Lord, and as the Bible tells us right here in Job 1.1, he eschewed evil. Now, Job was a very blessed man. Look at verses 2 and 3. We're told that he had seven sons and three daughters, and his substance was great according to verse 3. He owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen. That would be a 1,000 oxen. Remember, a yoke are two oxen yoked together in a harness to pull various implements. He owned also 500 she-asses and a very great household. Now, he had seven sons and three daughters. The household refers to the servants and the handmaids that Job had. And as we read the book of Job, we'll, have, we'll see mention of the servants and handmaids that he had. So that this man was the greatest of all the men of the East. Notice, most things in Scripture are given relative to the land of Canaan, the land of Palestine. Arabia and the land in which Job lived, the land of Uz, was to the east of that land. He was the greatest of the men of the East. Job was a wealthy man. God had definitely blessed him. Let me show you, though, one example of how much Job feared God and eschewed evil. We can see in Job chapter 1, beginning at verse 5. Let's, let's read verse 4. And his sons went and feasted in their houses, every one his day, and sent and called for their three sisters to eat and to drink with them. And it was so, when the days of their feasting were gone about, that Job sent and sanctified them, and rose up early in the morning, and offered burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus did Job continually. Notice what God, Job does in order to preserve sanctification in his family. When his sons and daughters would get together, we don't know if it was for birthday parties or not, but it describes for their respective days to eat and to drink. Job would offer up sacrifices for them and sanctify them. Notice whenever he heard that his sons and daughters were feasting, in the seriousness of his mind and his fear of the Lord and his desire to hate all evil, he would send messages to them and sanctify them. Now, Job couldn't sanctify them legally, but he could send to them and tell them to confess their sins if they had done anything evil, and to make necessary corrections in their lives to follow the Lord's commandments. In addition to that, Job just didn't settle for that. Job prayed and offered sacrifices for his own children. Notice that it says he rose early in the morning. When Job knew that his sons and daughters had been feasting, he rose early in the morning in order to offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. In case they had sinned and cursed God in their heart, in case that during the levity of their partying, the levity of their feasting, they had had any light or irreverent thoughts about God, Job offered up sacrifices on their behalf. Remember, Job is one of those few men that God will listen to their prayers 
and accept their sacrifices on behalf of others. Oh, that we had fathers like that for our children that could sanctify them and offer sacrifices and prayer for them. And the Bible tells us, thus did Job continually. Job just didn't do this once in a while. He was a consistent father on behalf of his children. Now, beginning at verse 6, we take up Satan's two attacks upon the life of Job. In verse 6, we have described for us a particular day in heaven when God called all the angels together. Here they're called the sons of God. Now, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And while the sons of God are there, Satan comes with them because he was a son of God. He was a created angelic being. And the Lord asks him, where have you been, devil? And the devil says, well, I've been in the earth going to and fro. And the Lord here boasts about his man Job. And oh, that we might have God boasting of us in heaven. But the Lord boasts about Job and says, Hast thou considered my servant Job, Satan? Satan, have you looked at Job, that there's none like Job in all the earth? Job's a perfect man, an upright man. He fears God and he has choose evil. But Satan has this response. Doth Job fear God for not? In verse 9, Satan says to the Lord, The only reason Job fears you is because, according to verse 10, you've put a hedge around him and you've blessed him materially. Now that is something that frightens me as your pastor. Is the only reason that you fear the Lord because thus far the Lord has taken care of you and things have gone well for you. Are you what I would call a fair-weather Christian? You know, you've heard of fair-weather sailors. And after the storms I've been in on Lake Huron, I'm a fair-weather sailor. The only time I want to go out in a sailboat, if I ever go out in a sailboat again, is when the weather will be very fair. Are you a fair-weather Christian? The only time you want to be a good Christian and the only time your faith is strong is when things are going well for you. And when things go poorly and God's not blessing you as completely, why, then your faith falls, you're depressed, you murmur and you complain against the Lord. Satan knows that that is a temptation and a tendency that we all have, and that is something Satan goes after. And when the Lord will give Satan leave, or when the Lord will give Satan permission to do what he wants, he'll go after us to destroy that hedge around us and to bring afflictions into our lives. We may lose a job. We may have a business go sour. We may have to sell our home. We may not be able to sell our home. We may have physical illness come. We may have children turn against us. We may have parents turn against us. We may have relatives die. We may lose an investment. Satan can bring all those things to bear in our lives, and the Lord will allow him to, just to see what we're made of. Remember, the Bible tells us in Proverbs, If thou faint in the day of adversity, thy strength is small. Now, the Bible tells us that we can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth us. We have great strength if we'll use it. If we truly fear the Lord and want to take advantage and avail ourselves of what God has given us, we can handle adversity. But the devil knows, the devil knows that in the flesh we are weak. And if things are taken away from us so that it's not going well for us, so that we are enduring afflictions and tribulation, we'll have a tendency to murmur and complain against the Lord. And Satan immediately comes to the important issue, does Job fear you for nothing? Or is there a good reason why Job fears you, Lord? Doesn't he fear you because you have blessed the work of his hands 
and his substance is increased in the land. When the Lord is blessing us and our substance is increased, it's easy to fear the Lord. It's easy to show zeal for the Lord, isn't it? It's easy to be enthusiastic in the worship of the Lord. It's easy to encourage our brethren, isn't it? How is it, though, when we are sick, when we are faced with physical trials and temptations, maybe we don't even know if we're going to live or not? What's it like when we have economic disasters in our lives? Do we still fear the Lord even in the face of those evil circumstances? Let me warn you from this illustration. Satan goes after your peace and quiet and tranquility and blessing. Satan wants to take away your peace. He wants to take away your tranquility. He wants to take away your increase in substance and abundance to see if you truly fear the Lord for not. Do you fear the Lord for not? That is, do you fear the Lord simply because He is the Lord? Or do you fear the Lord because either He has done good things for you in the past or you are expecting Him to do good things for you in the future? That should not be the basis as to why we fear the Lord. That's why these modern charlatans who preach a gospel that if you will obey the Lord and if you'll send money to my ministry, the Lord's going to pour out a blessing upon you. That's why those kind of ministries frighten me and scare me and why they delude so many Christians because that type of ministry creates fair-weather Christians. We need to have a basis for fearing the Lord simply because He is the Lord. That is, fearing Him for not, as Satan would put it. That is, nothing that we might receive, hope to receive, or have received. That's why we ought to fear the Lord. Well, the first thing Satan asks the Lord in verse 11 to put forth your hand now and let's afflict Job and take away the things that he has been blessed with. And in verse 12, the Lord says, Satan, go ahead. All that he hath is in thy power. Only upon himself don't put your hand. So Satan went forth from the presence of the Lord. And in verse 13, we read about there was a day when his sons and his daughters were eating and drinking wine in their elder brother's house. That is, all seven brothers and three daughters were together in one house. And, ver and a messenger came to Job in verse 14 and said, The oxen were plowing and the asses feeding beside them, and the Sabians fell upon them and took them away. That was a warlike neighboring nation. They fell upon them and took them away. That is, took the oxen and asses away and have slain the servants with the edge of the sword. And I only am escaped alone to tell thee. One servant comes straggling, struggling in, falls down at Job's feet and says, The Sabians came and killed the oxes and the asses, killed all the servants that were taking care of them, and I'm the only one that was left to escape to come and tell thee. In verse 16, while he was yet speaking, while he was still telling about that trouble, there came also another and said, The fire of God is fallen from heaven and hath burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I only am escaped alone to tell thee. So while the first one's talking, the second one comes and tells Job, Fire came down from heaven, burned up all the sheep and the servants that kept the sheep, and I only am come alone to tell thee. While he was still talking, another servant came and said, the Chaldeans split up into three bands and fell upon the camels and have carried them away, yea, and slain the servants with the edge of the sword, and I only am escaped alone to tell thee. So all the camels are taken captive by the Chaldeans, and the servants that kept the camels were destroyed by them, and only one servant was allowed to come and tell Job, 
And bless his heart, he's giving Job the news while he, while the second man has not yet finished the news of the destruction of the sheep. And that man began his message while the first messenger describing the destruction of the oxen and the asses had not yet finished. So Job's just getting bad news right on the heels of bad news. In verse 18, while he was yet speaking, there came also another and said, Thy sons and thy daughters were eating and drinking wine in their elder brother's house. And behold, there came a great wind from the wilderness. Here came a tornado or a hurricane or a thunderstorm, smote the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young men. And they are dead, and I only am escaped alone to tell thee. So the house, the, the house of the eldest brother fell flat. Job's seven sons, three daughters are now destroyed. What did Job do? Now at this point, Job is righteous, and Job does the right thing. In verse 20, we read, Then Job arose, and rent his mantle, that is, he tore his clothes, and shaved his head, and fell down upon the ground, and worshipped, and said, Naked came I out of my mother's womb, and naked shall I return thither. The Lord gave, and the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Notice Job takes the form of mourning. He tears his clothes, he shaves his head, and he falls down and he worships God. At this point, Job fears God for not. That is, for nothing that Job owns does Job fear God. Job fears God because God is God. Job fears God because God gave and the Lord has the right to take away. Naked came I out of my mother's womb, naked shall I return thither. Why, the Lord gave me everything I had. It's his pleasure and privilege and right to take it away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job sinned not, nor charged God foolishly. Now, that's going to change. As of chapter 1, Job doesn't sin. Job doesn't charge God foolishly. But that will change as Job begins to look at exactly how bad it was. Now, we saw in verses 2 and 3 of this first chapter that Job is described as being a very great man for these things. Seven sons and three daughters, 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 she-asses, a very great household of servants, which made him the greatest man in the east. Now the Lord has taken away his oxes and his asses with the Sabians. He's taken away his sheep with fire from heaven. He's taken away his camels with the Chaldeans. And he's taken away his sons and his daughters with a great wind that came out of the wilderness. What does Job have left? Nothing. Job has nothing left but a few friends and a wife. Now what happens is chapter 2 is that the devil comes in for attack number 2. Satan comes in and he realizes, and the Lord tells him, look at Job has not cursed me yet to my face like you thought he would, even though I destroyed everything that he has. Look at in verse 3, the Lord said unto Satan, this is chapter 2, verse 3, Hast thou considered my servant Job, that there is none like him in the earth, a perfect and an upright man, one that feareth God and escheweth evil, and still he holdeth fast his integrity. That means Job hasn't wavered in fearing God, although thou movest me against him to destroy him without cause. Now this is important to see. God is bringing affliction upon Job without cause. Now, what we're going to see as we progress through Job, that there is a cause, but it's a future cause. Sometime God, sometimes God brings afflictions in our lives to protect us 
from future events or from future conduct that we might be tempted to. But there was nothing in the past of Job for which God was bringing this into his life. This was simply a test of his faith. And to use it as a lesson to teach Job against something he might be tempted to in the future. Chapter 2, verse 3. In Job chapter 2, verse 3, we have the Lord telling Satan, although you've moved me against him to practically destroy him, without cause, he still is holding fast his integrity. Notice, Job has not sinned yet. Job hasn't even wavered. He's holding his integrity fast. We need to be thankful for that as we look at the life of Job, that thus far Job has taken it like a true champion, a true soldier, in holding fast in the face of all these afflictions. And Satan comes to the Lord and says, I see that, but skin for skin, this is verse 4, skin for skin, yea, all that a man hath will he give for his life. And, he, and Satan asked the Lord in verse 5, Put forth now thine hand, and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse thee to thy face. And the Lord said unto Satan, Behold, he is in thine hand, but save his life. The Lord gives Satan leave now to afflict Job physically. Can't Job, Satan cannot take the life of Job, but he can do just about everything up to that point in afflicting Job with physical pain. And so Satan, in verse 7, goes forth from the presence of the Lord and smites Job with sore boils from the sole of his foot unto his crown. That is, from the crown of his head to the sole of his feet, he's covered with sore boils. And Job sits down in an ash heap and begins to scrape himself with a broken piece of pottery in, in verse 8. And then one of the few possessions or one of the few things Job had left in this world, that is his wife, comes to Job and says this to him in verse 9. Dost thou still retain thine integrity? And yes, Job did to that point. Curse God and die. But he said unto her, Thou speakest as one of the foolish women speaketh. What? Shall we receive good at the hand of God, and shall we not receive evil? In all this did not Job sin with his lips. Even though now his wife turns against him, Job still hangs in there. He retains his integrity. He holds fast. Even though his wife now is asking him and telling him to curse God, he retains his integrity and does not sin. Let me bring one more point to bear from this story. Satan will use our wives against us. And they're easy tools because women love to be used by Satan. Because women are more emotional. They look to the things they have in this world. They look for security. And the, the devil has always been able to use women. We can go back to the Garden of Eden and find Eve in about a two-minute conversation being taken away, deceived, foolishly, from what God had told her to the opposite of what God had told her. God had said, you eat and you'll die. Satan said, you'll eat and you'll be like God. And Eve was dumb enough, foolish enough, and gullible enough to do that. And, and Adam sinned because Satan used Eve. Job was tempted to sin by Satan because Satan used Mrs. Job. And when things are going bad, the first a person that we need to watch for is the devil going after our wives because it's so easy for our wives to start moping around, depressed, discouraged because things are going poorly. And when they start to nag us because things are going bad, we can know that the Lord is testing our faith. We need to teach our wives to be strong in the face of adversity and affliction. They are capable of it. 
By regeneration, the Lord has made women capable of withstanding the wiles of the devil, although they need to work harder than the men have to in these particular circumstances. The devil will go after the woman in order to deceive our men and to tempt our men to curse God and die, to leave the Lord. Remember, Adam made a choice between God and his wife Eve. He chose Eve. Job made a choice between God and his wife. And blessed be the Lord, Job chose the Lord over his wife. And I prayed the men in our congregation will choose the Lord over their wives. Now, in verses 11 through 13 of the second chapter, Job has three friends. <laughs> now, after we get through the book of Job, you'll wonder what kind of friends they were. In fact, most appropriate is that statement we often use. If these are his friends, Job had no need for enemies, as we see the behavior of these three friends. But now let's read about them, and beginning at verse 11. Now, when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that was come upon him, they came every one from his own place, Eliphaz the Temanite, and Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Naamathite. For they had made an appointment together to come to mourn with him and to comfort him. The three of them, you know, got on the telephone, had a conference call. Let's go see Job and see if we can't help him in the face of all this evil that's come into his life. Verse 12, And when they lifted up their eyes afar off and knew him not, they lifted up their voice and wept, and they rent every one his mantle and sprinkled dust upon their heads toward heaven. When these three men were approaching Job, now remember the houses are gone, all the, all the possessions, all the animals are gone. There's no sons or daughters to be with Job. All they see is Job sitting in an ash, sitting in some ashes, scraping himself with a piece of potter, and they couldn't recognize him. Things were so bad. Circumstances had so changed. They rent their mantles and they sprinkled dust on their head to mourn with Job. And we read in verse 13, So they sat down with him upon the ground seven days and seven nights, and none spake a word unto him, for they saw that his grief was very great. When they got with Job, they sat down there, and they saw that Job was so filled with grief, no one said a word for seven days and seven nights. Have you ever gone to see a friend that you knew something bad had happened? They'd had a, a father die or a mother die or they had lost a job. And when you first went and saw them, you didn't really know what to say. You were just kind of silent. You just wanted to try to comfort them by your presence. Well, Job's situation was so bad that when his three friends got there, well, they didn't say anything for seven days and seven nights, a whole week. They just sat there and looked at Job and didn't know what to say. And from this point forward, from this point forward, we now have an exchange of dialogues between Job and his three friends. This will take us all the way through Job 31. From chapter 3 to Job 31, we're going to have an exchange. Job begins the exchange in verse 3. Job's going to complain about his bitter state and the evil that's been brought into his life in chapter 3. Then Eliphaz... Bildad and Zophar, in order, are going to rebuke Job. They're going to condemn Job for his attitude toward what's happened in his life. And here's how it's going to work. Job's going to complain. Then Eliphaz is going to come back and condemn him. Then Job will defend himself. Then Bildad will condemn Job. Then Job will defend himself. Then Zophar will condemn Job. And Job will, con will defend himself. And that's one cycle. 
Eliphaz accuses, Job defends. Bildad, number two, accuses, Job defends. Zophar accuses, Job defends. That's what I call one cycle of accusations and defense. And then we start all over again. Eliphaz, then Bildad, and then Zophar. And after each one of their condemnatory chapters, Job will defend himself. Now that's cycle two. And then we have a third cycle. Eliphaz condemns, Job defends. Bildad condemns, Job defends, and Zophar finally gives up and doesn't condemn in the third cycle. But the book is laid out in a very organized fashion. I want you to see that so that when you read it, you feel familiar and comfortable with the book. Job begins here in chapter 3. You can see that in verse 1. After this, Job, after this, opens Job his mouth. And then in verse 1 of chapter 4, then Eliphaz the Temanite answered and said. So Job complains. Then Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, and between each, Job defends himself. Then they start over in the same order. Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar. And Job defends himself after each one. Then the third cycle, Eliphaz and Bildad. Job defends himself, wraps it up, and the words of Job end. And then Elihu takes over for a few chapters, and then God closes the book out. That's the order. We want to begin through these this exchange of dialogues. And this evening, we'll conclude looking at the exchange between Job and his three friends. Then we'll have to see what Elihu and God have to say about the whole thing. But in chapter 3, Job complains about his state. And what Job does is he curses the day he was born and wishes he had never been born. He wishes his mother had had a miscarriage so that his eyes would have never have seen the light of day and he wouldn't have gone through all the trouble that he is now experiencing. Let's read the first few verses of this chapter. After this opened Job his mouth and cursed his day. And Job spake and said, Let the day perish wherein I was born, and the night in which it was said, There is a man-child conceived. Look at verse 13. Not verse 13, verse 11. Look at Job asking, Why died I not from the womb? Why did I not give up the ghost when I came out of the belly? See, in these days, there was a higher infant mortality rate than we enjoy today. And Job is just saying, why didn't I just die at the moment of birth? Or why didn't I die shortly after conception? Or why was I even conceived? Because as you know, you don't remember anything from the nine months you spent in your mother's womb. You remember nothing. Job wishes he was in a state where he had died, where he could remember nothing. Because now he remembers too much. He has enjoyed seven sons and three daughters. He's enjoyed all his possessions. He's enjoyed a comfortable life. He's enjoyed a good wife. Now he remembers all those pleasant memories, and they're painful to him since they're all lost. Look at verses 25 and 26. For the thing which I greatly feared is come upon me, and that which I was afraid of is come unto me. I was not in safety, neither had I rest, neither was I quiet. Yet trouble came. I find these two verses most interesting. Job has two points in this first chapter of complaining. The first point is, and it it runs all the way from verse 3 down through verse 24. Job wishes he was dead. Job wishes he had died. Job wishes he had never seen life. Job wishes he had never grown old to experience the things that he had. 
That is covered from verse 3 all the way down through verse 24. If you were to read it, all it is is a repetition of Job stating in different ways, I wish I didn't, hadn't seen life. It's too, un, it's too hard for me. I can't bear it. I wish I had never seen the light of day. Now in verses 25 and 26, he tells us that what he's now experiencing, he thought that it just might come. Notice he says in verse 25, the thing which I greatly feared is come upon me. Job realized that the providence of God can bring good and it can bring evil. In Isaiah 45 and verse 7, the Lord says, I create evil and I create good. God brings good times upon a family, upon a man, upon a city, upon a nation. God also brings evil times upon a man, a family, a city, and a nation. Job understood that about the providence of God. Job understood that God could bring evil times. And Job feared that. All the time that Job enjoyed the hedge that God had built around him, the time that Job enjoyed his abundance and his increase, the time that Job enjoyed his reputation as the greatest man of the East, Job figured that bad times could come, that bad times would come. And that which I was afraid of is come unto me. Job figured that something like this could happen. I mean, if God gives all these things, and we are not in a position to demand them as a right, remember, we stand in a position of demerit before God. God owes us nothing. We're not even in a neutral state before God. We're sinners before the presence of the Almighty. He doesn't owe us anything. And Job knew that if God had blessed him with all these things, God could as well take those things away. Look at verse 26, and I want you to understand what Job means. I was not in safety. Now, Job was in safety. God built a hedge around Job. God knew it. Satan knew it. And Job knew it. But Job says, I was not in safety. That is, I did not take that safety for granted. Neither had I rest. Job did have rest. God guaranteed that Job would have rest. But Job did not take that rest for granted is what he's saying. I'm giving you the sense of Job 3 and verse 26. Neither was I quiet. Why, God had made sure Job was quiet. Job didn't have to worry about paying bills. He had plenty of money. Job had plenty of children. Was Job in quiet? In one sense of the word, he was. God had guaranteed Job quiet. God guaranteed Job rest. God had guaranteed Job safety. But Job did not take that safety, that quietness, nor that rest for granted. Even though he was quiet, at rest, and had safety, Job figured that things could change. And that is why he was so diligent to try to sanctify his children, to fear God and to eschew evil. But even though he had given such efforts, and to this point had not yet sinned nor charged God foolishly, God brought these things up on him without a cause, as we read in chapter 2 and verse 3. Here is a valuable lesson. Some of you have called me in the past. I hope you'll continue to call me. Don't let this use of your telephone calls discourage you. But some of you have called me when things have gone wrong in your lives, and you've asked me, what have I done wrong? You've said to me, I've tried to do what's right. Why is this happening to me? Don't speak that way. Did Job say that yet? No, Job hasn't spoken that way yet. Job said, The Lord gave, the Lord hath taken away. I came out of my mother's womb naked. I'm going to go into the ground naked. 
I'm not going to take anything with me. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That isn't sinning. But the minute you start saying, why is God doing this to me? So you're asking questions. And no one has the right to ask a question of God. Remember, he doeth according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand. No one can hold God back from doing what he does. And none can say, what doest thou? You don't have the right to ask God what he's doing. You have no right before the Almighty. Are you? Can you demand that God treats you well? No, not in the least can you do that. God can treat you in the way he chooses. And the way to please God is when circumstances come your way to fall on your knees, to confess your sins and to worship an Almighty. That is your duty. To this point, Job has not yet sinned. But he begins to complain, and he curses the day in which he was born. And he says, what's happened to me? I figured that it could happen. I figured that it would happen. I didn't take my safety, my rest, and my quietness for granted. It's happened to me now. Yet that trouble came. No matter how hard, no matter how hard, how diligent, how careful you are in putting into practice everything in Scripture, that does not guarantee that God in His providence will bring evil afflictions into your life to test your faith, to build your faith, or to preserve you from something that is yet to come down the road. Please learn that lesson. Don't blame God. Don't murmur against God. Don't ask God why things have happened. Trust Him as a wise creator in doing what is right. Now in Job chapter 4, Job chapter 4 and chapter 5, Eliphaz comes up with the first condemnation of Job. Now what we're going to find is that the three men, the three friends of Job, basically take one position. Every time you read Eliphaz, Bildad, or Zophar, they're basically going to be condemning Job. And here is their argument. Job, we've sat here for seven days and seven nights, and we've seen the terrible evil that God has brought upon you. You've lost everything. You've even lost your health. And here's why. You're a hypocrite. I mean, Job, after all, God only judges the wicked. God judges hypocrites. It's obvious that you're a sinner. You've got some unconfessed sin in your life. You're a hypocrite and you just didn't know it. And God has judged you for it. That's why this evil has come upon you. Now, when we get to the end of the book of Job, God will set that matter in straight and tell us that those three men did not speak right of, of himself. God did not judge Job for past sin at all. But the three men condemned Job for sin. Now notice, the three men we read in chapter 2 came to comfort Job, but they are no comfort to him at all. Now let's look at a few examples of this in chapter 4 and 5 of what Eliphaz has to say. Let's read the first nine verses of chapter 4. Then Eliphaz the Temanite answered and said, If we assay to commune with thee, wilt thou be grieved? But who can withhold himself from speaking? Finally, Eliphaz says, Job, if we say some things to you and offer our opinion of the matter, will you be grieved with us? But, but we want us, we want to speak. I mean, looking at you, we think we can see the answer and solution to your problems. That's what Eliphaz says. Verse three, behold, thou hast instructed many, and thou hast strengthened the weak hands. Job was a wise man and offered counsel to many in the past. 
Thy words have upholden him that was falling, and thou hast strengthened the feeble knees. But now it is come upon thee, and thou faintest. It toucheth thee, and thou art troubled. Is not this thy fear, thy confidence, thy hope, and the uprightness of thy ways? Eliphaz is saying, in time past, when someone else was experiencing trouble, you were right there with a comforting word, an encouraging word, a strengthening bit of advice. And now that troubles come to you, you faint. Why, you can't practice what you preached, is what these men tell Job immediately. The first thing Eliphaz says is, you can't practice what you preach. What you, why, you've told others to be strong in the face of adversity. Now it's touched you, and you faint. It touches you, and you're troubled by it. Why, you're wishing you were dead. As, as chapter 3 explains, instead of just worshiping God as you did in chapter 2. Is not this thy fear, he said in verse 6, thy confidence, thy hope, and the uprightness of thy ways? Isn't the affliction that's come your way an evidence of the degree of your fear, the degree of your confidence, of your hope, and of the uprightness of your ways? Doesn't all this evil affliction truly show us you didn't really fear God? You didn't really have much confidence, much hope in Him. You weren't really upright in your ways. That's what good old Eliphaz is telling Job. Remember, verse 7, I pray thee, whoever perished being innocent. Or where were the righteous cut off? Can you believe? Here Job is experiencing all this trouble, and Eliphaz's words of comfort are this. Well, I'll tell you, Job, the innocent never perished. The righteous were never cut off. And you know that. Verse 8, Even as I have seen, they that plow iniquity and sow wickedness reap the same. By the blast of God they perish, and by the breath of his nostrils are they consumed. Here Eliphaz tells Job in the first nine verses of his first statement, Why the problem with you is, you, you're just wicked. You haven't, you're not innocent. You haven't lived upright, in an uprighteous way. You are not innocent, but you're filled with wickedness, and the blast of God's nostrils is taking you away for your sins. Obviously, those words don't give Job a great deal of comfort. If you were to continue reading chapter 4, and we have no more to say from chapter 4, because the same thoughts are expressed throughout. Eliphaz is condemning Job. Job, you're just a wicked hypocrite, and God, by the blast of his nostrils, is punishing you for your wickedness. And in chapter 5, he continues with the same type of condemnation upon Job. Look at verse 17. Job, I mean, Job chapter 5 and verse 17. Eliphaz is still speaking, still condemning, still accusing Job. Behold, happy is the man whom God correcteth. Therefore despise not thou the chastening of the Almighty. Eliphaz is telling Job, Job, you can be happy in the face of all this. Just admit the fact that you're being chastened for your sins. Despise not thou the chastening of the Almighty. See, Eliphaz is making the assumption that what's happened to Job is punishment for sin. Now, remember when I preached to you a sermon entitled The Three Determinants of Christian Experience. There are three and only three things that can happen to a child of God in this world. First of those is you are suffering the natural consequences of foolishness. I mean, if, if you choose the wrong job when you're 24 years old, you may end up suffering for it down the road. If you don't save money 
sometime when you need some savings, you'll be suffering for it. That is, you'll be suffering the natural consequences of your own foolishness. That's one reason why evil can come our way. I mean, if you don't eat a proper diet, somewhere down the road you'll suffer for that improper diet. You're reaping the natural consequences of that poor diet. Your foolishness has brought on the evil that comes later. A second way in which evil comes our way is for sin in one area that God judges in another area. For instance, if you don't love your wife the way you should, God just may take away your health so that you're suffering physical health because you didn't love your wife the way God commands you to, say in Ephesians chapter 5. God punishes you in one area for sin in another area. Remember in the book of Haggai, those Israelites who had been called upon by God to build the temple and rebuild Jerusalem were building their own houses instead and had not built the house of the Lord. Therefore, God had put holes in their bags so that while they earned wages, they lost the wages and received no real benefit from them. God blew upon their crops so they weren't realizing bountiful harvests. God was punishing them in one area of their lives for sin in another area. The third way that you can suffer affliction in your life is that God may bring afflictions your way to test your faith, to prove your strength, to see what you'll do in the face of trials and tribulations, and to preserve you from future temptation to sin. For instance, when God called Abraham to offer Isaac upon Mount Moriah as a burnt sacrifice, God didn't ask Abraham to do that because of past foolishness. God didn't ask Abraham to do that because of past sin. The Bible tells us plainly, Genesis 22 and verse 1, God was tempting Abraham. God was trying Abraham to see if he truly feared him. And you know, if you pass a test like Abraham, I mean, what down the road could measure up to having to slay your firstborn son? It preserved Abraham from future doubts. Sometimes God brings those things our way. Remember the Apostle Paul had a messenger of Satan, a thorn in the flesh, to buffet him in order to keep him from thinking too highly of himself in the face of the revelations God had given him. You can read about that in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Those are the three things. But now whenever we have evil come our way, bad health, we lose a job, a business fails, family turns against us, we lose loved ones. When those things happen, we need to ask ourselves those, ourselves those three questions. But we need to be careful. Eliphaz has not been very careful. He jumps to the assumption, well, Job, you're just suffering for past sin. God's chastening you for your wickedness. And if you'll notice, I'm very careful in doing that. When you call me and ask me what I've done wrong, I don't jump to that conclusion. Because jumping to that conclusion is to do something that is foolish and that God will hold you responsible for, just like when we get to the chapter 42, God's going to hold Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar responsible for jumping to that conclusion too quickly. Let us look carefully at our lives and not jump to the fact that God is punishing us for sin. There very well may be other reasons that God is punishing us, and those other reasons should bring us to our knees that God has a purpose in what He does. But hopefully in chapter 4 and 5, you can see that Eliphaz is setting the stage for what the three friends are going to say, and things aren't going to change. They're going to be describing the greatness of God 
and the fact that God judges wickedness, and Job, you just happen to be one of those wicked hypocrites that God judges. That's why you're suffering the things that you are. One other point I want to make, though, from the statement of Eliphaz, and it's chapter 5 and verse 13. Chapter 5 and verse 13, Eliphaz is in the middle of a short little dialogue here explaining God's judgment of the wicked. Notice in verse 12, He disappoints the devices of the crafty so that their hands cannot perform their enterprise. Verse 13, He taketh the wise in their own craftiness and the counsel of the froward is carried headlong. Eliphaz is describing how God judges the wicked. He takes the wise in their own craftiness. Have you ever heard those words before in Scripture? You've heard them in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 19, where Paul quotes that as to how God makes foolish the wisdom of this world. He takes the wise in their own craftiness. We often use a verse like this in 1 Corinthians 3.19 to describe why God would allow so-called scholars in our generation to prepare Bibles that have Elhanan killing Goliath instead of David. He takes the wise in their own craftiness. They think they're wise, that they can sit down and determine what God meant in His Word. They can change God's words. And so when God sees them glorifying their wisdom in textual criticism and correcting the Word of God, He takes them in their own craftiness and leaves them with Elhanan killing Goliath in 2 Samuel 21, 19. The point I want to make, though, is though Eliphaz is coming to the wrong conclusion about Job's troubles, God does use a statement of Eliphaz in the New Testament. What Eliphaz says about God is true. God does judge the wicked. Now, we know that from the rest of Scripture. And God will judge the wicked sometime by turning them over to darkness, by blinding their minds, by taking the wise in their own craftiness. So therefore, when we quote from the book of Job, even though we're quoting from Eliphaz, from Bildad, or from Zophar, we can count on those quotes as being scriptural. Here is the problem. While everything Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar say is true, God does judge the wicked. God is terrible in His judgment of the wicked. God was not judging Job. That's the whole difference. Paul quoted Eliphaz. Paul never quoted Elihu. Paul didn't even quote God from chapters 38 through 41. Paul never quoted Job. Eliphaz is the only man ever quoted in Scripture. And sometimes you may have wondered, when we turn to Job, should we discount everything the other men have to say? No. Only discount their application. The interpretation is correct. The interpretation that God is a jealous God. God is a holy God. God is a chastening God. He judges the wicked and he chastens them for it, and he's terrible in his judgment. That is a correct interpretation, but the application of it against Job is wrong. God was not judging Job. We'll see exactly what God was doing with Job when we continue our study. I have preached long enough this morning to you. I know we haven't made much progress, and you'll need to pray this afternoon that tonight we can make enough progress to finish the book. But I hope I have laid a foundation for what we can cover this evening. And we'll cover it quickly as we run back and forth between the three friends accusing Job, Job defending himself. The three friends accusing, Job defending. Job knew that he had tried to be a righteous man. 
and he can't understand what's happening to him. And while in chapter 2, he simply ascribed it to the greatness of God that God can do with his creatures as he will, as we progress, Job's going to become more and more frustrated in his bitterness and grief and begin to charge God foolishly with not being fair toward him. And the three friends will certainly pick up on that and attack Job for not submitting to God's judgment. Their recommendation is, Job, get on your knees and confess your sin. That isn't what Job needed to hear yet. Now, as we get farther toward Elihu, Job will deteriorate in the position he's taken. He will not retain his integrity. He'll begin to lose it. But I hope so far you've got a perspective for the book of Job. You know a little bit more about the man Job, that he was a man that God could look at as an example for other men to follow. He was a representative that God would hear his prayers and accept his sacrifices on behalf of, other, behalf of others. He was a perfect man, an upright man, one that feared God, one that eschewed evil, and one that we should watch to see how circumstances Satan did begin to win. As Satan afflicted his body and as Satan took away his possessions, it did begin to take its toll on Job's attitude toward God's providence. And my friends, that is the bottom line of why I'm preaching this book to you. I want you to see how it began to wear Job down to where Job began to speak foolishly. And Elihu and God must correct him at the end of the book. I trust I shall see you in a few hours as soon as I return from St. Louis. I pray God's blessing upon the preaching this morning. I trust that it's been profitable to you. And I hope that this evening when we finish the book, we can see the end of Job and the Lord's blessing upon him and the true perspective we ought to have when God brings afflictions and tribulations our way. May we bless his holy name and worship him no matter what he does to us. Though he slay me, Though worms destroy this body and eat my skin, yet will we praise God regardless of the circumstances. May he bless us to that end that we may be righteous men who can stand for our families, for our church, and for our nation. May God bless the preaching of his word is my prayer, and I trust to be with you in a few hours.